10 Minute Talks. A podcast in which the world's leading professors explain the latest thinking in the humanities and social sciences in just 10 minutes. The history of tragedy is conventionally traced from the dramatic theatre of 5th century Athens through its efflorescence on the Jacobean and Elizabethan stage, and then in its shifts into different mediums and genres from the 18th century onwards. There are different elements of this standard history that are pertinent to an understanding of postcolonial tragedy, and it is not unusual to focus on the various fine adaptations of the Greeks that can be found in postcolonial writing such as the Nigerian Wolish Linkers reworking of Euripides' Bakai, or the South African Yael Faber's production of Ischylosis Oristia for Molara, a play that invokes the transitional work of her country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But there is more to the relationship between the Greeks and postcolonial tragedy. I focus in my book instead on what I call disputatiousness. And this is one of my starting points for connecting the two. Whether with Clytemnestra and her husband Agamemnon, King Oedipus and the prophet Tiresias, or Antigone and her uncle Creon, the disputatiousness of Arctic tragedy is everywhere in evidence. While Hegel is correct in turning to Antigone as part of his illustration of the dialectical clash between apparently irreconcilable ethical standpoints. It is Jean-Pierre Vernant who provides the most systematic account of this disputatiousness. In his essay titled Tensions and Ambiguities in Greek Tragedy, Vernant sees Greek tragedy as the medium for detailing the transitions and entailments that took place between the domains of religion and law that were the central shapers of Greek life in the fifth century. Concepts such as decay, justice, nomos, law and custom, and ethos, the fundamental character or spirit of a culture, all come to do double service and are explored by him by what emerges as a philological anthropology. When we turn to postcolonial tragedy, what we find is that the most expressive examples display strong forms of disputatiousness regarding the polis of their social imaginaries, even as there are also transitions and transpositions between law and the sacred in some postcolonial tragedies. The cause of disputatiousness is tied mainly to the struggle against anachronistic or false universals with colonial modernity, slavery, diaspora, and the predatory and postcolonial nation state being exemplars of such universals. While we do find degrees of disputatiousness in the Renaissance, and especially in Jacobean and Elizabethan tragedy, it is Shakespeare that I think provides us with a second productive rubric for illustrating another key feature of postcolonial tragedy. I use the term disputatiousness here to refer not just to 
disputes between characters, but also to point out the often violent processes of historical and social transition that engender such disputes in the first place. Disputatiousness in historical and social transitions has a correlative in the unruly affective economies or emotional turmoil that mark the character's fractured sense of their place in society. The Shakespearean tragedies of an almost pure historical disputatiousness, such as Julius Caesar, Corellinus, and Titus Andronicus, are not considered among his best, and for good reasons. For it is the addition of an unruly affective economy and emotional turmoil that places plays such as Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra above those of a pure historical disputatiousness. Shakespeare's finest tragedies correlate the unruly affective economy to different modes of argumentation that emerge from changes in the represented historical worlds of the place. These include transitions in the political realm, as we find in Hamlet and Macbeth, the unstable recodification of the relations between gender, local governance, imperial rule, and the claims of romantic love, as we find in Antony and Cleopatra and in Othello, and the progressive shifts in the relationship between the king's body as a surrogate of the body politic and the spheres of the natural order, as we find in King Lear and Richard II. The dimension of an unruly affective economy amplifies the interiority of the characters on stage and renders them ciphers of the changing social and historical realities of which they are a part. The trope of disputatiousness and historical transitions tied to an unruly affective economy is to be seen as much in Wule Shoinka's Death and the King's Horseman as in Chilo Achebe's Hour of God, Nadim Mahfouz's Midak Ali, Jean Reese's White Sedasso Sea, C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, all of which, along with several others, provide great examples for understanding postcolonial tragedy. In addition to the long history of tragic disputatiousness that I trace from the Greeks, I also draw heavily on Aristotle's poetics and the Nicomachean ethics to establish the parameters of suffering and the impediments to flourishing or the good life. Uh, my Aristotelian scaffolding is, however, augmented by a very important concept that I draw from my cultural background. I come from Ghana, and in the Akan culture from which I hail, there are certain infractions that are placed under the rubric of musu or harms to the soul, that seem to me analogous to the category of impediments to ethical choice per Aristotle's formulation of such impediments in the Nicomachean ethics and elsewhere. The term Musu is normally translated into English as taboo, 
but in my reading, may also be considered as deep harms that impact simultaneously individuals and the communities of which they are a part. When a trusted person sleeps with a friend's wife, they are can say with dinu which may be translated as he has served or given him death. In other words, he has killed him. Such grave acts of betrayal are also referred to as wikum misunsun, or he has killed his soul. The killing of someone sunsun, what I'm de describing here as a harm to the soul, is thought by the account to deeply impact upon the victim's emotions and may cause the affected individuals to themselves suffer a loss of faith in society that may consequently also affect their capacity for making ethically informed choices. However, Sakmusu would, I think, also fall under the general Aristotelian rubric of causative reversals of fortune, not from the view of the alteration of material circumstances, the loss of a job or losing a house, but rather from the measurable impact that these might have for the exercise of ethical choice, both at the individual and the communal level. Because of the perceived poisoning of the sources of general health beliefs, for the community, there arises an attenuation of the shared sense of collective values that help to shape interpersonal relations within itself. One finger dipped in palm oil, say their can, ends up soiling all the other fingers of the hand. Like sacrilegious taboos such as murder, stealing sacrifices meant for the ancestors and the gods, or having sex in the bush, they can also consider such harms to the soul as sometimes requiring acknowledgement and propitiation as a means of repairing the disrupted ties of filial, both familial and friendly. The person suffering a harm to the soul has not only to undergo personal psychic adjustment, but the entire community of filial has also to undergo a form of ritual restoration. What I want to derive as a strong emotional effect of harms to the soul from the Akan category of Musu seems to me to have implications for interpreting the mechanisms of harmatia and anagnorisis that we see worked out in Aristotle's theory of tragedy. For the Akan might reinterpret Aristotle's uh, categories as pertaining to the relationship between knowledge and community since anagnorisis, or tragic knowledge in his view, is not always the exclusive purview of the individual tragic protagonist, but in certain circumstances is co-produced through the interaction of their guilt with the sense of contamination and anxiety of their wider community. In contrast to Aristotle's concepts, Akat Musuo names actions that are deeply personal in their implications for the continuing exercise of ethical choice, as well as collective for the perceived well-being of the community at large. The duality I see encoded in the Akan concept also means that individual actions are always judged to have an automatic social or communal ramification, 
and that while it is the individual that may experience the reversal of the capacity to act or to make ethically salient choices, the community is not entirely excluded from the existential malaise brought on by the Musu. Indeed, there are many examples in Greek tragedy to suggest that the catastrophe that afflicts the hero bears interpretation as a Musu in the account terms. Thus, we see, for example, the chorus's reaction to watching Oedipus coming out of Eucastus' bedchamber with blood streaming down his eyes and learning that he is the source of parasite and incest that have contaminated the entire Theban society. Every reaction of the chorus registers the sense of pollution that is thought to be carried by Oedipus, a pharmacos of which he has become an exemplar. A similar thing can be seen in the Argive Chorus's retrospective report of Agamemnon's sacrifice of Iphigenia in Aeschylus's version. Everything about their description, including the fact that Iphigenia was gagged so that she could not utter curses upon her father, speak to the idea of Musu contained in that terrible scene. Each element in my theoretical armature is then illustrated through a careful exploration of works by Chinua Chile, Bule Shuinka, Tehib Saleh, Tony Morrison, Arunda Tiroi, G.M. Kutsir, Samuel Beckett, and also Shakespeare, all of whom feature as individual chapters in the book. I deploy examples from postcolonial literature to help qualify the insight drawn from the Western tradition and vice versa, and also to illustrate the fact that when it comes to understanding tragedy and indeed suffering in general, everything that has been written on them through humanistic inquiry in every tradition and culture is relevant to the enterprise. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.